Israeli democracy in danger? As judicial reform is discussed in the Knesset's halls, we at the Times of Israel are taking a journey probing into what are the country's current checks and balances and what could be the consequences of potential new legislation. Are we headed for a tyranny of the majority or rather implementing much needed legislation? Join us as we explore these issues with top Israeli legal experts in this Limited Times of Israel podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin? Hello, everyone. Welcome to this eighth episode in which I, Amanda Borshaldan, speak with Dr. Susan Weiss in our Times of Israel Jerusalem offices. Susan is the founder and director of the Center for Women's Justice, which is an NGO that defends women's rights wherever they are violated by the state, usually in the name of religion. In her decades-long career, Susan has challenged the Supreme Court and family courts again and again to readdress the state's treatment of agunot, which are women held captive in marriage, mamzers, quote-unquote illegitimate children that are born into legal and religious stigma, Jewishness, investigations, gender discrimination, and unfortunately, much more. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. My pleasure to be here. You couldn't make it last week because of, unfortunately, COVID. And so I'm so pleased to host you in our Jerusalem office to discuss what you would have said at the event on December 15th. So you very kindly wrote a op-ed that gave us four different points of concern, and we'll discuss that. But first of all, just tell me, a little bit about what you do and why the override clause could affect your work specifically. Uh, okay. Well, what I like to say that I do is that every time church and state clash over the bodies of women in Israel, uh, the Center for Women's Justice will respond in, in, in more ways than one. But one of the most important things that we do is we file creative litigation. And we file it in the courts, we file it in the family courts, we file it in the rabbinic courts, we file it in the um, Supreme Court acting as the High Court of Justice. And um, we, try, we try and get the courts to respond to what we feel are the violations of human rights for, of women in uh, in in those contexts, in the context of church and state, is the original sin that there just isn't enough legislation, enough laws on the book that protect women's rights? No, I think. Well, yes, but uh, yes, but and um, the original sin, I think, is in the structure of the state, and one of the most uh, problematic areas is the fact that we don't have a constitution. I think that's probably our original sin. Um, as best uh, we have is the Declaration of Independence in which we um, proclaim what we feel are the values of the state, and which include such, I such radical ideas as equality. <laughs> radical. And, um, but, but it's a very important proclamation. And from what I understand from the history, actually, of that proclamation, it was a condition of the United States agreeing to the uh, um, form formation of uh, of the state of Israel, so it's a very important proclamation, and uh, theoretically, at least, they are you know equality is one of the values of the state, 
but we don't have a formal constitution and we don't have a justice department. So not only don't we have a constitution in which it declares that everybody is equal and that all of us should have individual rights, um, but we don't have a justice department meant to protect uh, the human rights of all of us individuals who live here in the state of Israel. So sometimes when I go to the High Court of Justice and I speak to the Prokletut there, the state attorney that comes to represent basically the government and not the individual, I said, who do you represent? I, I, I challenge them. I say, who, who, who are you representing? So sometimes they say the law and sometimes they say um, we represent they don't like to say they represent the government because that's really who they represent. And so I like to joke with the people in my office that really um, the the person, that, the people that represent the interests of the individual in the state of Israel are us, the employees of the Center for Women's Justice. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating. And there are other NGOs that also do that. But if I had to... Um, articulate who it is that's protecting the uh, liberal values and the rights of the individual than it is the NGOs in the state of Israel. Because we don't have a Bill of Rights, we don't have a Constitution, and we don't have a Justice Department. So it's, it's, uh, it's really, really crucial that we have the NGOs, and at least in theory, the High Court of Justice, which is meant to, I think, protect the rights of the individual. So let's talk about four different areas that you broke down in your op-ed. Obviously, I'll include a link to that in our program notes in which there's specific areas that you use the Supreme Court to protect the rights of women. Well, uh, yes, we've used them on, the, on numerous occasions. And then there's a whole area, which I mentioned at the end of the article, I just was like, uh, like off almost offhandedly, where we go off and also, and I think we should talk about that okay. a little bit. So five areas. <laughs> five areas. Um, so the first area is gender um, segregation. One of the key cases, and a very easy case, I like to say, that we brought in the area of gender segregation, we've done it actually quite a few times. We've also sent letters, for example, sometimes to complain about gender segregation in Meiron. They were originally planning to have separate shvilim, separate paths for men and women in Meiron, and we sent a letter objecting to it, and they didn't do it. So that's just another example. But uh, we, a few years ago, it was in 2015, we brought what I, what I claim is a very simple case <clears throat> against the commissioner of the wall in, um, in uh, you know, the, the Western Wall. In the Western Wall, <clears throat> we discovered all of a sudden that there was a regulation which the commissioner sat in his room with a bunch of other people and wrote. And the regulations effectively prevent anyone from bringing in a Sifrei Torah, Torah scrolls, into the wall, um, except it just happens to be that they have around 100, or I don't know how many actually, I may be exaggerating, Torah scrolls available on the men's side of the wall and no Torah scrolls available for women. So theoretically, this regulation is gender neutral because no one can bring in Torah scrolls into the wall, but they have the Torah scrolls available for men. So we brought a case in front of the Supreme Court trying to throw out the regulations, saying that the regulations are inherently discriminatory. And that case is sitting in front 
of the High Court of Justice since 2015. It's been um, conjoined with the other cases regarding the Kotel, and there are many. In fact, we also brought another case, which I didn't mention in the blog, is uh, at one point in time when there was a hearing on the Torah Scrolls case, I mentioned at the time Eliakim Rubenstein was sitting in the High Court of Justice, and I said, you know, they're, they're um, body searching our clients. And he said, you can't do that. You can't body search clients. And I said, well, they are. And we brought this case in front of the lower courts asking for damages for the body searching of our clients. And I can't tell you how hard that case was because um, we actually had footage of the of the body searching and the the state in its various permutations we sued everybody we sued the commissioner we sued the company responsible for security at the wall because nobody was real everyone was like passing responsibility from one person to the other on who was really responsible for the body searching until finally you know, and we, we, I tried to get discovery to find out who was responsible, and, and they were just mitramkim, as they say in Hebrew. They were, they were, they were slithering. <laughs> they were slithering, and um, finally, when we, you know, we presented to them our uh, footage of the body searching, so they finally agreed, and they pay, actually ended up paying damages, very minimal, but they paid damages, admitting that there was body searching at the wall. But in any event, that case is is just pending because, in, and this is one of the problems that I discussed in my article, is that the Supreme Court hesitates to interfere whenever church and state clash, particularly over the bodies of women. And whereas I, I think it's one of the easiest cases that, you know, they should just throw out these regulations because they're on the face of things discriminatory and they haven't done that. So we are concerned about uh, gender separation expanding and 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 you know and rearing its ugly head in different places and as i wrote in the blog my feminist sensibilities are that there should never be separation that separate is not equal and that's it in the public space well when the other in cases the you space. you bring up is um separate seating on buses and i remember myself going out to visit uh, cousins in Bitar elite which is a haredi and ultra-orthodox uh, city and i was told when i got on the bus you have to sit in the back i was shocked because as someone growing up in north america the rosa parks case is so ingrained right. in our identities and and here we are in israel and it's still going on yeah and and that case took like four years till it was resolved and i remember when it first came up i also said this is an easy case too rosa parks right, <laughs> you know? right. simple and they set up a committee and whatnot and until i think also there were women, uh, especially from the reform movement, if I believe they were doing these um, freedom rides, they called it, you know, to 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 establish the rights of women, which should be obvious also. Um, so let's talk about the next uh, segment that you discussed, which is work discrimination, and you brought up two two different areas here, and one of them I wonder actually if there is a need, and that is the fact of women not joining the ultra-Orthodox parties. Are there women who want to and are being turned away? Um, okay, so there's another case we were really involved with quite directly, uh, which was 
a woman who who started her own Haredi Women's Party, I believe. And um, she tried to get, she tried to advertise in the Haredi papers, and they refused to advertise her Haredi party in the Haredi papers. So I believe there are some women, um, they don't seem to be too vocal because now the Supreme Court did convince the Haredi parties that they had to take it out of their bylaws. They had to take out the prohibition <laughs> against women joining the party in their bylaws. So theoretically, there can be a woman who would sit in a Haredi party. Um, but to date, we don't know of any women who have requested to do so. And, it, you know, I think uh, we were not involved in this particular case, but I think there were cases in which they um, they tried to argue that it was they shouldn't be allowed to sit in the Knesset at all because women are not in the party. And the Supreme Court has not stepped up to the bat with that one. Uh, but what I did um, describe in the in my piece is that since 1988, I think, since the Leah Shaktiel case, uh, women have made inroads into um, basically bureaucratic positions in the state uh, rabbinate of you know whether in rabbinic courts in different manners. So we have made some progress at least in that area. Though the one area that really bothers me to this day and is really horrible when you think about it, is the fact that women cannot sit as judges on the rabbinic court. And so, you know, you go into a, a uh, courtroom and there is only only men, only white men can be judges. Well, maybe that's not, maybe. Maybe not only not, white. <laughs> maybe not only white men, right. Um, you know, can sit as judges on the rabbinic courts. And that in and of itself is very, offensive, in my opinion. And there's the Convention for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women that says you cannot discriminate, uh, you, have to, you have to advance the rights of women in, public, in the public sphere. And we have a specific reservation against that area and in, in acknowledging that our, our um, religious courts, and it's not only, not only uh, the uh, rabbinic courts, but all the religious courts, the millet, the millet system, which millet means religious community, and all of our... Everybody's the Ottoman yeah. system, right. essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. So all of them are male. Crazy. Dominated. Okay. That's crazy, yes. So that brings us to the next the topic, withholding of religious services. Uh -huh. On the face of it, just religious services, right? Which holding was that? That brought me to. I I spoke about one of our cases in, in there, which was fascinating. I felt, which was the case of Plia Oria, that um, this was a young woman. She was a high school student at the time, actually, and um, she wanted to use the mikvah. She was engaging in sexual relations, and she felt that she wanted to use the mikvah. And she looked very young. She was young. And um, the mikvah attendants um, didn't want to let her. Use, asked her, "Are you are you married?" And she said, "No, I'm not." She, you know, she she spoke the truth. And they said, "Well, then you can't use the mikvah." And uh, she was studying civics at the time, and she came to the Center for Women's Justice and said, "Well, I want to bring this case." And we actually had a little bit of contention, I think, in the 
bored and uh, did you this. speak with her parents for no. example no because she's a minor or? well no but she's entitled she's, <laughs> okay she's yeah. entitled and you know and and then we found out some very interesting things actually we found out and i couldn't expand on this in peace but they weren't allowing women who were not minors who wanted to get married in the conservative and reform movements to use the mikvah because and many people don't know this too, but you know, if you're single, you can't use, if they feel you're single and you can't use the mikvah, you have to give a petek, you have to give a note to the to the attendant that you're getting married, right? Because you're still single. So uh, to this very day, although I heard that there's some change, you know, uh, women are required as part of the requirement to get married, they have to go to the mikvah. So I remember when someone pointed out to me that how 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 out, outlandish really it is that in order to get a license to get married you have to strip naked in front of someone who you don't know and in you know as a prerequisite to the license to get married in any event we found out all sorts of other women who wanted to use the mikvah who weren't allowed to use the mikvah for example women who um who had just gone through an operation, or women who wanted to go up on Har Habayit, the Temple uh, Mount, the temple mount mm -hmm. or these women who were getting married in ceremonies that weren't recognized by the state. So there were all sorts of people who were being denied religious services. And, and it should be noted that these religious services are paid for by the state, meaning the women who were being denied were paying taxes that right. were paying for the women who were denying them the service, essentially. Right, right. And also, how, um, if just as an aside, noting that a man who wants to use the mikvah, even with his son, for any reason, can just jump in the mikvah and have a know, splash whenever they want <laughs> and splash. Right. So we brought the case, and again, what was very interesting is that the court didn't actually make a decision, okay? But the judges at the time said to the rabbinic court, you, you know, this is, they're citizens like everybody else. So, so they agreed to a policy of don't ask, don't tell. And actually they put notes in the mikvahot saying, this is, if you're single, you cannot use the mikvah. This is against the halakha. In other words, but they're not asking and not telling. And I understand it's I'm not it's not so clear what's happening there, although there were other cases that were brought subsequent, mikvah cases that were brought also p women who said they wanted to use the mikvah without the supervision of the balanit. So that we've made a little progress over there too in religious services. Okay, so let's talk about uh property rights. Property rights, right. Ah, uh, there, uh, the Supreme Court has stepped up to the bat. Although, if, you know, but it took a long time, you know, it, it was an expansion of time. So in the 1950s, originally, the, uh, according to the halakha, women don't have property rights. And let's just say that, you know, in Britain, also women didn't have property rights for a long time. I think it's called coverture. So it's it took a while till uh, all of, uh, you know, t and, you know, well, married women didn't have property rights. So it took a while till we women got the ability to own property on our own, especially if we were married. So in the 1950s, they passed the women's equality law and allowing women, uh, declaring that, that women have property rights because the particular case involved there was a woman 
who owned property before she was married. She had a building, I think, in Ben Yehuda in Tel Aviv. And her husband claimed to all the rights to the rent and the rights to the building. And I think the Rabbanut agreed. And that was the first, one of the first cases in which the high court came in and said, no, you know, and they passed the women's equality Israel women's equality law saying they they can own property. But section five of that women's equality says that women in Israel are equal, except not in the area of marriage and divorce. Okay. And that little section, and I didn't, I couldn't get into that in the, in the, um, in the piece that I wrote also, but you should know that the, the, the override clause, which is what we were talking about, doesn't have the term equality in it. And one, I believe that one of the speakers said the reason there was a reason that there wasn't equality in it. And I happen to know the reason because I was there when they were debating why equality is not in the law. So um, the reason it's not in the law is because of the women, not because of the Haredim. In other words, they wanted to have equality in the basic law, but then they wanted to have an, the exception, the same exception that is in the women's equality law saying, okay, but not in the area of marriage and divorce. And recently, actually, I said to my husband, I think we made a mistake. All the women's groups came out against, they said, that's, that's outrageous. We can't have a, a law of equality and dignity and, and respect and, 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 and liberty and have an exception again put in for women. But I, I think in retrospect, that may have been a mistake. At least we would have had the terms equality in it. So I'm just saying al chet here. <laughs> but in any event, so going back to the property law. So in the 1994, I believe, or so, we had the Bavli case, which is a very important case in which um, the uh, Barak at the time, you know, specifically told the court that they had to apply secular laws when it came to the division of marital property and assumptions of partnership at the time for people who were married before 1994, I believe. And um, and then recently, in recent cases, I think since 2008, there were a whole bunch of cases in which they um, um, the rabbinic courts had um, had divided the property not necessarily equally because um, they claimed that the the women were not faithful to their husbands, and that was a reason that they they actually cited the law that they could make exceptions to the equal division of marital property. And another case, a couple of cases came up like up like that recently, and one in particular. Um, had to be brought in front of an expanded court in order to um, in order to basically upend the decision of the of the rabbis. And the issue of infidelity is very important. And that brings us to the fifth. Okay, but before you go to Mamzerim, which okay. is the fifth. Um, and Noah Fot. Okay, <laughs> I just want to add one thing that you wrote in your piece, which is that the court in that infidelity case said the court does not sit as a court of appeals on rabbinic court decisions. And that was so chilling to me because, so then who does? Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the things that, mantras actually, that the rabbinic courts will say all the time, you, the, the high court does not sit as a court of appeals. And um, in fact, one of our, our original sins, if we talk about, is the sin of the rabbinic courts. I hate to say it like that, but the rabbinic courts don't answer to human rights. The rabbinic courts answer to a higher authority, and that is God himself. And they are the representatives of God on 
on on uh, in the state of Israel, and you know there's no there's no appeal on God's word, and if God's word is that women are not equal to men, then that's God's word. So the very fact that the high court somehow managed to you know managed to make a statement here is very important, and in fact. Um, I think one of you know. I think if the law specifically states that the rabbinic courts have to apply the law, then they have to apply that law. But the rabbinic, uh, I don't think the rabbis think that they are subject to a higher law other than the highest law, which is the word of God. So we really have a we have a problem, and that brings us to the fifth. Yes. Okay. So go for it. Okay, I'll go for the fifth. So. Um, my career actually started as a divorce lawyer, and then I opened up uh, legal aid for women in divorce, which is Yad Lisha, which still operates. And then I opened up the Center for Women's Justice, in which we're trying to make systemic change. Or and and it, it you know, like I like to say that what happened was I first thought the problem was bad husbands, and then I thought that problem was bad laws, and then I realized that the really the problem is the structure of the state and those original sins, and so we're trying to address the original sins. So one of the cases which I did not go into is our no effort case. <laughs> it's the case where a woman was. An adulteress, okay, or not? She wasn't an adulteress. Her husband claimed that she was an adulteress, and at the time, what happens is if you're getting divorced, and at the end of your divorce proceedings, your husband says, "And by the way, I think that my wife slept with A, B, C, D, E, F, and G." They will actually put in your uh, rabbinic court decision, which is a precedent to the divorce order, that you cannot marry A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And I had a cl- I had a, a friend of mine, Sharon Shinhav, who who actually introduced me to this whole area. Who once had a client whose husband actually did that, an older woman, and he, her, the husband was paranoid, and he wrote A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and she had to go to court to get those names left. So we had a, cl- a case not where. The husband claimed A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, but claimed just at the end of the hearing, I don't think that the client even heard about it. And that, you know, she, her husband claimed that she was unfaithful to him with Mr. A. And they wrote in the proceedings, she cannot, you know, she cannot remarry Mr. A. So we went to court and we said, you know, first of all, is due process. She has to be able to respond to this. And second of all, you're not treating all divorced women the same because you're not asking everyone who gets divorced, okay, tell me who you slept with before you, we, we issue our proceedings. And you're not telling people, women who go who were divorced and are going to get married and are asking for a license, you're not asking that. So we, you know, if it's not essential to the proceedings, in other words, if it's a a claim, for example, perhaps that the husband wants a divorce and the woman is, and, and and the woman says no, and he's claiming, but she was unfaithful, that at least for a man is a is a cause of action for divorce. It's not for a woman, by the way. So that's one of the inequalities. But in any event, so... We have, uh, we argued that you have to interpret the law very narrowly, okay? So, so as to disallow any questions regarding fidelity if it's not relevant, especially when there's a, the parties agree to the divorce, which was 
the case in our case. In other words, in Israel, if you agree to divorce, you can get divorced. So we we try, you know, so we try to argue in front of the court that they should narrowly interpret the law so as to disallow any questions regarding fidelity when there was a divorce by agreement. And instead, the the Supreme Court asked the rabbinic court to issue regulations to regulate um, the issue, this issue. So this hap- and this we've done repeatedly. In other words, repeatedly tried to get the high court to narrowly interpret the jurisdiction of the rabbinic court so as to minimize the human rights violations that occur against women. So one of one of the examples is the the case of the unfaithful, the, the scarlet letter cases, right? And then we have the Mamzer cases, which are another example of what we try to do, where a lot of our cases of Mamzerim are children, are children. And by definition, if you're a child, you're not asking to marry and divorce. So we went in front of the high court and we said, the state has no jurisdiction to make any determination with regard to children because they're by definition not getting married and divorced, and therefore all the cases involving mums, Arim, and children should be thrown out. And again, the high court is hasn't hasn't been willing to step up to that bat and limit the jurisdiction of the rabbinic courts. And if anything, there seem to be in a certain way, expanding the ability of the of the of the rabbinic courts when it comes to mamzerim. So there's all sorts of challenges, you know, that that we we face, including the agunot. But um, I think that the job that we have from the Center for Women's Justice is to make these claims again and again and again and again, because so much of it is taken for granted. For example, just the area of, um, you know, the fact that there's only men sitting on the rabbinic court, we all take that for granted, or we take it for granted that you have to strip naked before you get a license to get married, or we take it for granted that some women will never get divorced in this country because their husbands just don't agree to it. So, all of, I think one of the main jobs of uh, that we have in the Center for Women's Justice is to say no to these, to, to you know, to to stand up to power, as they say, and to hope that eventually, at some point in time, things will get better. And I mean, and, you know, hopefully, I would like to see privatized rabbinic court and so that that this will at least not, this will not be coercive. And that people who, who don't want to be subject to these rules that are not necessarily fair or equal will not be forced by the state to do so. Okay, so let's bring it back to the topic of the override clause. And essentially, it sounds as though you're afraid that everything that you've struggled to accomplish through the courts could be rolled back, or all of a sudden, you wouldn't have this avenue. Yeah, I'm worried. I'm worried. Because as we started this conversation, the Supreme Court really is the the place to go for, you know, to protect the civil liberties of and human rights of the citizens of the state of Israel. So I I fear the chilling effect of the override clause. In other words, theoretically, the override clause is only relevant if there's a law that the court says 
uh, finds to be uh, a violation of the basic rules, the basic laws. And then the Knesset can theoretically come and say uh, the override clause means the Knesset by a majority, it could even be by a just the majority of the people in the Knesset, it's not clear, can come and say we're overriding what the Supreme Court said. But I, I believe, and I do say this in my piece also, that not only laws, but regulations and practices, you know, the court will hesitate to, to interfere because they don't want to be overturned. And, you know, as it is, the, the whole, it, whenever it comes to church and state and women, um, or religion and state and women, they hesitate. So I, I, I worry, I worry then in all these areas that we discussed, that, you know, where we've had incremental um, progress, that we, it, it can reverse itself. And certainly, you know, if we try and pass legislation, um, we're going to have a hard time doing that, and um, and and it will not only will it have a chilling effect on the high court, but will also embolden those uh, lawmakers, which we see are happening right now. You know, just right now, I know there's two. Um, there's two hatzot chok. There's two laws on the books to expand the jurisdiction of the rabbinic courts to areas not related to marriage and divorce when the parties agree to it, which for many years the women's groups have objected to for all sorts of reasons, and one of which is that we fear that you know husbands will say you know as condition to divorce we want all the issues to be in front of the rabbinic courts and just all sorts of things that people don't think about that. That can, that can affect women. Susan, thank you so much for coming in today. Really appreciate this conversation. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this piece of a discussion hosted by the Times of Israel delving into all sides of the looming High Court Override Clause proposal. A thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to TOI's own Mick Weinstein. Shalom. Shalom.